Good morning, church. Our scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 17. I'll be reading from verse 24 through 27. After Jesus and his disciples and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma texts came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was first to speak. What do you think, Simon? he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch. Open his mouth and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my text and yours. The word of the Lord. Morning. My name is Nick. I'm the assistant minister here. And I have the privilege this week to close off the series we've been spending in this season of Epiphany in. Uh, the series about the miracles of Jesus. And I know if you're maybe visiting today or this is your first time here, you're like, ah, the end of a series, maybe not the best time to be here. But don't worry, I'll, I'll catch you up sort of to where we're at now. So far, we've been confronted as a church with the suggestion that miracles aren't undermining the natural order of the world, but they are in fact a means by which God restores the way the world ought to be. In Pastor Phil's words, miracles both reveal something about who God is and redeem something that's wrong in the world. We've seen how the miraculous might address the state of a person's soul, as in the case of a paralyzed man who, when he's brought to Jesus, Jesus forgives his sins. We've also seen how the miraculous might address our social needs in a man who had leprosy being restored to community or in preventing shame at a wedding feast at Cana. We've seen how acts of mercy and healing can address societal ills as well. Like when we see a man who's blind from, earth, how, from birth, how our first question shouldn't be who sinned, this man or his parents, and that a Canaanite woman can have more faith than anybody dreamed possible, be freed from the evil of racism that defined many of her interactions, even as her daughter was freed from the evil of demon possession that had held her. So these are the kinds of miracles and the kinds of natural restoration of the world that we've been considering so far. And the miracle we'll talk about this week, the miracle of the coin in the fish's mouth, well, that might seem like less weighty of a miracle and less important than many of these others. But nevertheless, it intrigues me quite a bit because no one is healed. Nothing too surprising happens. It doesn't seem as though anything radical transpires at all. In fact, this story seems to be perfectly forgettable. I happen to know that it's perfectly forgettable because in conversations that I've had with many of you over the last number of weeks and sharing that I would be preaching on this text soon, many of you told me that you didn't know anything about this story. You asked me where this story was in the Gospels or said that you'd never heard it before at all. 
Unlike stories like the feeding of the 5,000 or Jesus walking on water or any number of his healings, this story doesn't seem to have risen to the level of our general cultural awareness. It's not a story that gets a lot of attention, and it's certainly not a story that many of us cherish close to our hearts. It's one that we probably read and thought was curious, but then didn't pay much attention to it. And it's certainly not a story that we cherish close to our hearts. It's probably one that we read, didn't pay much attention to, and eventually just forgot. Perhaps it's because of this very simplicity and the reality of how easily forgotten it is that I find I like it so much. I wonder, is this miracle so forgettable just because it's easy for us to read it and shrug it off as a coincidence? Fish end up eating all sorts of things in their lifetime. Is finding a coin in one really so uncommon? Is this actually that miraculous? If Jesus hadn't explicitly said this would happen, would Peter have even considered this to be a miracle? How many of us have stories exactly like this? Stories where we just happen to find exactly what we need in an unexpected place? or in a completely unexpected way. And we call these things coincidences. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that every time you find a coin on the road that that's a miracle, right? I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying that in this story, it was. And in many of our stories, perhaps it has been as well. But because it's so ordinary, because it's so common, because it's so unsurprising, we've likely forgotten these stories all too quickly. The miracles of the mundane which God grants to us, revealing the ways that he continues to provide for our every need, redeeming a world where too many have far too little. These simple miracles go uncherished, dumped into the bucket of the coincidences we marvel at briefly but move on from urgently, as if to think about it any longer would make us feel a little uncomfortable, perhaps would cause us to consider the possibility that God might still be breaking into our world, that God might still be breaking into our very lives, that our Heavenly Father is involved for caring for our needs. It's actually quite a natural suggestion that a world he called good would be made completely good again. These thoughts, though, are not ones we like to linger on and consider because they chafe against everything that is rational and reasonable in us. They challenge us to imagine more than we can see and more than we can touch or feel. Challenges us to be open to the miraculous even in the life of a normal, ordinary person like me or like you. It's not only, though, that this miracle is so forgettable that intrigues me about it. But it's also that this miracle seems to be completely unnecessary, right? Like, was, was this a necessary thing, this coin and fish thing? Because who exactly does God pay taxes to? Surely Jesus isn't required to contribute to the monetary upkeep for a temple that is meant for his worship or for a world that is held together only in him. Right? This, this isn't something Jesus needs to do. Jesus doesn't seem to consider it necessary to pay this tax at all, but he tells Peter to go and to find this fish so as not to offend. 
And why is not offending suddenly a valid motive for a miracle? What is Jesus trying to redeem in this story? I'm going to invite you to become biblical scholars with me for a couple minutes because there's a context for this story that it's really important that we understand. The first thing that we need to realize is that this miracle is only found in Matthew's gospel. It's only found in Matthew, the tax collector's gospel. The tax collector offers us a miracle about taxes that nobody else is interested in recording. We should pay attention to that. The second thing we need to know is that there were two primary taxes present in Jesus' day. There's the local temple tax and there's the Roman tax. This story is probably about the former. That's what the translation this morning said. But the Greek isn't actually so specific. The Greek kind of says the people who collect the money came by and said, doesn't your master pay the money, right? Like it doesn't say, but scholars figure because of the value, because of the two drachma amount, it's probably the temple tax, but we don't know. The thing we do know is that by the time Matthew's gospel is written in 80 or 90 of the common era, the temple's already gone. The temple had been destroyed by the Romans in 70, over a decade before this gospel's written. And so that knowledge that if this is the temple tax, the temple's gone, it should raise the question for us, why does this story make it into the gospel? Right? Because the gospel isn't an exhaustive catalog of everything Jesus said and did. The people who write the gospels have a reason for including the stories that they include. And so we have to wonder, why does Matthew include this story? Is his reason just to provide an interesting historic anecdote about Jesus' opinion on a tax that no longer exists? I don't think so. I don't think that's worth including in this gospel. So what's going on here? There's a common interpretation to this. The common interpretation says that Jesus is pointing out that God is like the kings of the earth and exempts his children from taxes. And so the disciples, as children of God, shouldn't pay this tax. But Jesus instructs them to pay it anyway in order to not cause offense. Fair enough, we might read it that way, but I think there are a couple key problems with that reading. The first is that God is nothing like the kings of this earth. The kings of the earth exempt their children from taxes that they require of all other people. Taxes which are oppressive and cruel and overwhelming. If God is like these people, if God is like the kings of the earth, he exempts his children from taxes that he requires of all other people. God is cruel and malicious if he's like the kings of the earth. God's children are exempt, but all other people feel this weight. This is not how our God is. If anything, our God expects more and not less of his children So when Jesus says the the kings of the earth, what his listeners would have understood and what the readers, the first readers of Matthew's gospel would have heard in their memories was the words of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The kings of the earth conspire against God. They exempt their children from the taxes and expect all other people to pay them. And perhaps what Jesus is saying is that we are not the children of the kings of the earth. 
that we are not exempt from their taxes that they exempt their children from. We are children of our God. So that's the first problem with this. Our God is not like the kings of the earth. The second problem with that interpretation is since when has Jesus had a problem with causing offense? It's only two chapters earlier in Matthew's gospel when Jesus is speaking to the crowd and he says, a person is not defiled by what enters their mouth but by what comes out of it. And his disciples come to him after he said that and they urgently speak to him saying, don't you know the Pharisees were offended by what you were saying? And you can see how Jesus responds, leave them, they are blind guides. If the blind, if the blind lead the blind around, both will fall into a pit. These are not the words of a man who's concerned about causing offense to the religious elite. Jesus doesn't mind offending people with the truth. So he isn't telling his disciples to pay this tax just to avoid offending people. Not if the tax is unjust, not if they shouldn't be paying it. So there's definitely something much bigger happening in this little passage we've read this morning. And I think to really understand what Jesus could be saying, we need to go back. We need to go back and remember who Jesus is and the way that he teaches his disciples. All of this is Jesus from Matthew's gospel. This is the Jesus that Matthew wants us to remember. Jesus is the teacher who declares that the meek will inherit the earth. Jesus is the person who says we should not resist an evildoer, but turn the other cheek. Offer our coat if we're sued for our short shirt. Go two miles if we're forced to go one. Jesus is the teacher who says we ought to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Who insists that we do not store up treasure for ourselves on earth. Who says that we should not worry about anything saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what will we wear. For our heavenly father knows what we need. If this is what Jesus teaches. If this is how he calls his followers to function in our world. Then this miracle and the story that surrounds it becomes a story about choosing not to resist even the evil and oppressive schemes which tyrannize and marginalize and trouble us personally, but to choose for ourselves to submit to them, trusting in a God who cares for all of our needs. When Matthew's gospel was written, there was a new tax in town. Having destroyed the temple, Rome realized that all that money that used to go to maintaining the temple, that money was still around. And if the Jewish community could afford that money for their temple, and the temple didn't exist anymore, the Jewish community could afford that money to send to Rome. So there was a special tax just for the Jewish community and the newly forming church as well. So readers of Matthew's gospel would see in this story the invitation of Jesus to trust that our God is in control. That when Rome insists on its way, God provides for our needs. That the God who controls nature not only controls the fish of the sea, but also controls money. And that the God who controls money also controls even the kingdoms of this earth. The kings of the earth conspire against God. Rome imposed a tax explicitly on the Jewish community of which the Christian church was still very much a part. And the gospel of Matthew highlights for us that God is still in control. 
that in paying even such a problematic tax, the witness offered is one of a God who continues to provide for the needs of all his people. Perhaps Jesus wasn't concerned at all about offending the Pharisees for the Pharisees' sake. Maybe he was concerned about his disciples and his disciples' ability to function in this world and in this system. As Psalm 2 goes on, it says, The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Rome thinks it's in control. The tax collectors think they have all the power. But Rome isn't in control. It never was. It never would be. God laughs at an oppressive tax. The Lord scoffs at a circumstance that would harm his children, and he provides for their needs. Not only with the real needs of our lives, but also with the unnecessary circumstance of an onerous tax. That even this, his people can and will pay, because they are the people who walk further than they are required to walk. They are the people who are more generous than they ought to be because they have a God who provides for all of their needs, who laughs at every attempt to overthrow or undermine him, a God who scoffs and provides a way. Our God laughs at the powerful who imagine they're in control. How could this miracle be anything other than some kind of divine joke? The tax collectors come looking for their payment, and they're paid with only what comes out of the mouth of a fish caught that very day. I don't get the humor, but there's some sort of divine comedy happening here. It's so absurd. It's so ridiculous. God laughs, and he eases the burden of his people. God laughs, and he puts the proud in, his, in their place. God laughs and remembers all of our needs. For the first readers of this gospel, every time they had to pay that new Roman tax, they could remember this story. Remember that coin that came from the fish. Remember a God who controls all things and provides for all needs. Remember that Jesus himself chose to submit to this tax when he didn't need to, even as he chose to submit to a cross that he did not have to bear. They could remember this miracle and have confidence that as they paid Rome, it was an act of faith in the God who laughs in Rome's face an act of quiet resistance against the hubris of Rome alongside their God who could not be overcome. That same invitation is offered to us again today to remember this easily forgotten miracle and to remember the lessons that it provides, that it reveals a God who provides for all of our needs and to remember and believe that when our needs are met and when we have enough even for those things which we wish were not a part of our lives, in those moments we join with God in laughing at the circumstances that sought to make our lives difficult. When we didn't have enough money to pay the bills or enough time to do all that's expected of us, when the burdens that others place on us are too great for us to bear, we can remember this miracle that our God makes a way in the most unlikely ways, that our God laughs at the things which seek to cause us trouble because in him they will be undone. We are also invited, as God makes a way for us to pay what we thought we wouldn't be able to pay, 
to do what we were sure we could never do, to consider how even the coincidental might actually be God's very hand at work, a miracle of God's continued care for all of our needs, even the needs that we wish we didn't have, right? All of us have bills to pay that we could do without. All of us have obligations that, yeah, we would like to opt out of, but for whatever reason, we can't. And God says, it's not just the food that you need to live, that I care about. It's also the circumstances that shape your life that I care about too. God will provide a way in all of these things. We are invited in this miracle to remember even the forgettable miracles of our lives, to remember the God who provides for our needs in the unexpected and in so doing reveals himself to be more powerful than every bill we have, every expectation on our budget or our time or our lives, that he is above all of that. And that in our living out of even the most uncomfortable realities of our lives, we can remember the God who is above it all, making a way for the difficult to become easy, for the unremarkable to have a much better story, for his children to live on his terms and in his ways, even when we have to live within systems and structures which we ourselves have no power over. This little, forgettable, even unnecessary miracle is a miracle of God's goodness in a world of competing loyalties, of deep complexity, where people don't always get to choose everything that they have to do, everything that's expected of them. God subverts the expectations of our world. God meets the needs of our lives and insists that he is and ever will be the God who reigns over all things. The fish of the sea will obey him, and the kings on their thrones will obey him, even if they resist and that he can work through all these things for the good of those who love him and for the good of the whole world. May this be so in our lives for the sake of God's kingdom, now and forevermore. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, it's as ridiculous as it is marvelous in this story of the coin in the fish's mouth. but in it we see you breaking into the world. And in it we desire to have that kind of hope for our lives. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see those same kinds of silly or small but oh so important and powerful miracles happening in our homes and in our families and in our church. That you would give us eyes of faith that we wouldn't see in every small thing a powerful miracle, but when you do break in, that we would name it, that we would expect it, that we would celebrate it, and that you would give us the strength to endure even the most difficult circumstances of our lives, that we would be able to choose to submit to the powerful, knowing that you are more powerful than they that we for ourselves would be able to choose to believe that you are the God who can control even Rome and that we participate with you in living out our lives as you make us able. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.